0: Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Um Today we have a great guest for you. Um, Kate Wagner of McMansion Hell fame. Um, maybe the most famous guest we've had on in at least a week. In at least, a <laughs> in at least seven days. <laughs> um, Kate's got a really great website uh, called McMansionHell.com, and she does some great writing. But before we get to her great stuff, we want to plug a little bit of our great stuff. Of our great stuff. Right. For $5 a month, you can get our great stuff. Which is numerous, uh, really, almost infinite, but um, not quite. What's what's the greatest quantity right before infinite? Um, One. (laughs) There has to be a number so large, that is like the end of all numbers but it's not infinite. I've wondered about that for a long time. Yeah. Well, that's how much content we
1: have at our Patreon. It yeah, really. You couldn't you can't finish it. You can't. It's like the internet. Right. You will literally never finish it. Yeah. You'll die 4 times
0: before you finish our content. That's right. Um because even though you may finish it like like you may finish it literally like on the page You'll never finish it, because then you'll just be thinking about it later. It'll always be a part of It'll you. It'll always be a part of you. It'll be haunting
1: you. For $5 a month, <laughs> you can get haunted. Haunted with content. <laughs> Go to patreon.com slash Trillbilly Workers Party, no apostrophe. That's right. And if you don't know how to spell Patreon, that's
0: patreo com slash
1: T-R-I-L-L-B-I-L-L-Y. <laughs> W o r k e r s, p a r t
0: y. That's right, and five dollars a month, you can get some good content. This weekend, we uh, Aunt Bernice herself is back. She's finally fucking back from her. We've goddamn- heard your,
1: we've heard your cries. She heard your cries, <laughs> and we had to do a little something.
0: Right, she's finally back from all of her travels, um, and so she'll be at the Patreon. We got a good episode on the Patreon we, coming for you. It is. It slaps. It's so. fucking hilarious. But uh, so, anyways, go check that out. Um, every Sunday, we put out episodes on there. Um, we would love f- your support, and I am about to take a short little trip vacation. So I would really, really love your support because I'm about to go in the hole for this fucking shit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Unemployed in a big cross country wedding is a bad combination. That's exactly that's right. Say, it would only be worse if they like yeah. if it was one of those weddings where they made you buy tux. Right. Yeah. If I ever, this is my solemn <laughs> pledge to anybody that might end up in my wedding party. If I decide to tux it out, I will pay, make sure I pay for your tux. Thanks, man. Thank you for that. He said you're in the wedding party, though. Uh, <laughs> got a couple of <laughs> hurdles to jump out.
0: I have to stay alive first. That's the <laughs> well, biggest that's hurdle. that's the biggest one. Um, so, you know, would it be a great help. This is my only salary at this point. This is my only source of income. So, Please. <laughs> tell, tell friends.
1: Start a GoFundMe That's
0: right For us whatever. Um, But yeah Go to our Patreon You're getting something Out of it too Because you get fucking uh, You get episodes You get content Anyways we, We've wasted enough Of your time um, but So go check that out And uh, in the meantime Enjoy this episode With Kate Wagner From McMansion Hell See you out there
1: Yeah I was I was oh. reading your Curved piece From back in March And uh uh, a felt scene a little bit when you're talking about uh, you know we're, we're as rural kids we're coached you know the ways of the woods and how not to step over logs without looking for snakes first and whatnot
2: <laughs> it's true that's sort of how I grew up uh, learning all the plants what you could and couldn't eat that kind of thing Totally. so like weird to me that people are all about lawns because it's like you, I'm basically like, you big fucking baby, like, go in the
1: woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go see some real grass. I, yeah, exactly. I um,
0: I lived with a guy one time, Kate, who refused to cut the lawn. And I was all for it. I hate lawns, and I hate cutting them and keeping them or whatever. But the neighborhood, like, organized and confronted him. And they co- they confronted <laughs> us. They were like... You have to cut this. Um, you know, we. you're, you're making us look bad. <laughs> um, so he, like, paid the, um, I think it's, like, what's one of those big environmental nonprofits? The Wo- World Wildlife Federation. Federation. Yes. Yeah, he, like, paid one of those nonprofits to, like, come out and, like, designate our yard as a, like, wildlife sanctuary. Um Dude. that's so
2: good No, it was hilarious (laughs)
0: And so um, he didn't have to mow it And it pissed off everybody (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yep, pretty good Um, Well, uh, thanks for joining us today, Kate Um, You know, we are really glad this uh, was able to, uh, you know, work out
2: Yeah, me too Thanks for having me on the show
1: absolutely yeah you're you're our favorite <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've been wanting this to happen for a long time I just never could figure out a hook and it seems like we figured out a little bit of a hook
2: well that's good thank you
1: yeah um
0: you know I like to read your blog when I'm feeling really depressed because it um and I think I probably told you that but uh it's it's like it's just a really good um mood lifter
2: <laughs> thank you I uh I feel like producing it uh is a labor of love because you gotta look at these all these fucking ugly houses and you just gotta pick one and you're like okay which one of these is the fucking ugliest house <laughs> and you're just like no it could go deeper it can get uglier you could you just have to like keep looking it just like it keeps getting. Harder and harder to find the uh, the ugliest houses. Uh, What's your? There's ra- not a lot of houses with interiors from like the '80s left, which is really quite devastating for <laughs> the McMansell economy. But uh, now I think it's fi- we're finally gonna pivot to like uh, houses with like boring HETV uh, interiors. I'm just waiting for that shit to go out of style so I can start roasting it. Like, like, if you wrote something that's in style people get pissed at you oh so totally they're, they're judging like your your personal aesthetics they think, when you know really i'm just waiting for something new to come along so we can just start making fun of the last 10 years finally right are you like
1: go ahead i'm sorry
2: no no i'm done
1: <laughs> <laughs> i was i was gonna say are you referring to like uh like, what's, what's really popping around here seems to be is, like, the Magnolia. Uh, oh, yeah, the co- farmhouse. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. The rustic wood kind of stuff. On that note,
0: um, I posted something today on Twitter. Um, I don't know if you saw this, Kate. Uh, like, what's that show? Fixer Upper with... Um, G- Oh, I don't remember the two Chip and Joanna. Chip and Joanna, Chip and Joanna. <laughs> Joanna Gaines, yeah, yeah.
1: That's who, yeah, that's the.
0: Yeah. That show is driving, um, you know, this huge demand for what they're calling, um, what are they calling it? Reclaimed, Reclaimed wood? wood. Yes, and oh, yeah, um, and
2: people are stealing shit from barns. People
0: so are stealing shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Doing crimes just to get your Chip and Joanna look.
1: That's amazing. It's like the the wine moms have now become the new copper thieves.
2: Dude, <laughs> I'm here for it, frankly. I want to see, like, you know, like, uh, uh, Duke's a hazard, but it's wine moms. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah, Well, that's what I was wondering. Like, there has to be a sort of, like, black market, like, you know place where like sub- wealthy suburban deads like meet seedy thieves in the dark of night and alleyway is like hey man you got that like uh you got that 30 pound 30 tons of refurbished wood I got you know I need
2: you got that ship left yeah <laughs> dude I'm just I just need my fix Vanity to
1: redo. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. You know, that, I don't know if these two things are related, but I, I was I was commenting on that tweet. Uh, a friend of mine's like a, a land property surveyor, and he said that like uh, black walnut trees, like mature black walnut trees, yeah. are going for like three or four thousand bucks a pop. And the new thing is, people are going on people's property and cutting them down and selling them. Oh my god.
2: <laughs> is this is really like a bleak thing if you think about it like it's really quite sad like the four fucking trees what do they do
0: exactly
1: well it's this like, I
2: don't know if these people have heard of this thing called fucking wood stain <laughs> but
1: yeah you can my sister
2: built ch- furniture in a little workshop and she um, she's still in North Carolina as furniture building is uh, a thing there and, uh, she, um, she, uh, was saying that people want this stuff and she's gotten really good at making tables that look like they're, um, that look like they're old.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's
2: found a way to sort of tool the wood in a way that distresses it, and so, like, These wine moms like can't tell the difference, so she's just buying fucking plywood at Home Depot (laughs) and uh, convincing like these dipshits that it's reclaimed wood, and they buy it every time because she's good at what she does. Is it a scam? No.
0: (laughs) Even if it was, that'd be fine. I mean, I'm not gonna knock that hustle. That's a that isn't a fine
1: Uh, hustle. The the famous gambler, Canada Bill Jones, said it's immoral to let a sucker keep his money.
2: (laughs) That's exactly right. We all say as we have Patreons. That's right. <laughs>
1: that's, that's right. That's <laughs>
0: um, So, uh, yeah, welcome to the show. This week uh, we've got Kate Wagner with uh, the the very amazing McMansion Hell uh, page, um, which you can find – I think it's just McMansionHell.com, right?
2: Yep.
0: Um, where you uh, basically um, – you know, go across the country to America's, uh, suburbs, but you know, other places too, and just pick out like just monstrosities, um, (laughs) you know, uh, houses that make no sense window, like 20 different kinds of windows, basement bars, um, just things that have absolutely zero functional value. Um, and you basically comment on them and, uh, I find it to be very hilarious personally
2: thank you oh, thank you
0: um so you know kate before we like really start uh getting into the weeds maybe let's start with the basics like you know you write that the the mcmansion is it's like an obscenity like i think who said that um on the supreme court like you know it when you see it right it's not the supreme court definition of pornography exactly right? you uh, a McMansion is an obscenity. You know it when you see it. Like, um, you know. So what is a McMansion? Where did it come from? Uh, where is it most commonly seen? And uh, why does it look the way it does?
2: That's a good question. Uh, I basically define a McMansion in sort of two parts. The first part is as a type of house, a typology, a housing typology that is related to other types of housing like a vernacular architecture. And the other part is as a cultural phenomenon. And these two parts come together to form this thing that we call the McMansion. Um, So architecturally speaking, the McMansion is a large suburban house. And I just casually define large as being a thousand square feet above the national average, which is already huge. Uh, I think the national average is something like 2,500 square feet, which is huge. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> I live in a closet. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, and it is defined by a, sort of a cannibalization of different arch- architectural styles, which is something that is called, previously called neo eclecticism, which is a way of saying we take all these different styles and then we apply them sort of like costumes. And uh, sometimes with McMansions, when you combine these costumes, you end up with some weird results. Like you'll have a Mediterranean house with like gothic windows. <laughs> uh, you'll have a house that looks like an olive garden, but with like nautical theming. Uh, it just ends up being pretty much a convoluted mess. And they have a sort of secondary function, which is to signify the wealth of the owner, which is to say, I have a lot of money and here's my house that says I have a lot of money, so to speak. Uh, so far where they came from, The McMansion developed in the late 70s through the 1980s from what was essentially larger split levels. A split level is a house with a central foyer and stairway uh, that is sort of the main circulation of the whole house. Uh, And it was the larger, it's kind of like the largest, at the time was the larger type of uh, suburban middle-class single-family housing. And so once people started to have an appetite for two-story houses in the 80s, which happened as a response against the ranch house, because at this point, the people who were born in ranches are now entering adulthood, and they are tired of long, low-ceilinged houses that uh, are kind of a one sort of continuous space. They want higher ceilings. They want more space. the The ranch is a really economical house. And kind of moving away from the one-story model into the, the two-story model. And instead of just doing, like, kind of a normal colonial house, they took uh, some elements from the split level. For example, the foyer with, with the large door and the chandelier, and which was on a much smaller scale, and kind of blew it up. It, it applied elements of postmodern architecture, specifically postmodern classicism, which was the dominant style in the 1980s, to, uh, like, we're talking um basically fied architecture uh postmodern classicism is what if we did columns but they're like pink and teal <laughs> and blown up to look like cartoons i mean this is i mean i personally love postmodernism just aesthetically i mean politically i have my issues with it but aesthetically i mean this is the time period the 80s and 90s i'm born in 93 that i grew up with so i'm like kind i kind of am into it but it took kind of like the the postmodern elements which in postmodernism, one of the kinds of architectural irony that was employed by architects was to play with scale so you would have like a house with like giant columns but like it's a tiny house just like this kind of architectural humor that was like very funny right um but at the same time people didn't necessarily realize it was a joke which <laughs> i think is uh to be expected from architecture because architecture as a field is like, kind of like, well, let the normal people like do what they will. We are very smart, educated, academic people, and we will do what we will. And so you ended up with like these, these places, like these giant foyers, uh, blown up windows, uh, cookie cutter kind of architectural detailing. And it, it got sort of, it sort of trickled down to use a Reaganism from high architecture like for example philip johnson's at&t building in new york which is kind of like a chandale cabinet (laughs) down through to developer architecture which would be like you know your average like marriott hotel or something like that down to sort of small-scale commercial architecture like the like a mall for example uh down to residential architecture like the mcmansion um and i think that the combination of the evolution of that a, a vernacular housing that moved away from the from horizontality, from the ranch style sort of mode of living to a more vertical one, combined with postmodern architecture and sort, it's sort of comical elements. The McMansion was sort of inevitable at that point. Uh, that's a kind of long winded answer, but now, I hope that that
1: are are, are there any uh, famous architects with these sort of monstrosities on their resume that are kind of blemishes.
2: Um, I think I don't think so. What's kind of sad about postmodern architecture is that there wasn't a lot of residential work yeah uh, Postmodern architects were really in the service of big corporations, especially Disney. I think Disney is the number what was the number one hiring. The the number one company hiring postmodern architects. I think every major postmodern architect did a building for Disney at some point. I mean, at least American ones.
1: So, so when you um, when you say Disney Disneyfication, you mean literally?
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. no, literally. <laughs> well,
0: um, you know, there's that really great essay by Frederick Jameson, um, Postmodernism. Uh, I think it's the cultural logic of late capitalism. Um, my
2: Daddy, yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> daddy Jameson. Um, but you know, in that essay he says, and I don't have it in front of me. I I don't remember, but I think he says something along
1: yeah, the lines pull of pull it out of your
0: shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think he says uh, he says something like um, you know, postmodernism, you know, has a lot of different expressions, but it's it's realized um ultimately, it's it, it finds its most ultimate like sort of perfect expression in architecture. Um, and I guess what he's saying is that, like, uh you know, you've got pastiche and you've got all these elements, basically what you're saying. um You know, and one of the questions I had sort of um posed to you is, you know, you write that reality TV, like reality TV and video art installations, McMansions are inherently postmodern. I don't want to get, like, too deep into the weeds on what postmodernism is, um because I want to do that at a later episode. But I just want to, like if you could uh what do you mean by that
2: it's interesting um i think my argument is really framed around the jameson argument especially around pastiche uh which he kind of compares to an, an addiction which i think is really funny it's like this sort of uh cannibalization of all these different historic styles and this kind of weird nostalgia that drives it um uh, and in McMansions, you see like nostalgia for all kinds of things. Nostalgia for things like separating services from public spaces, which was uh, which is left over from the times of live in servants, which uh, has some white supremacist sort of undertones. Uh, we also see sort of like nostalgia for or like Americana, like the colonial. House, for example or like or like Versailles the the desire for like a glamorous lifestyle of, of a sort of like uh to- not totalitarian but monarchist or like revanchist state um it's all about this kind of nostalgia for a type of power that one could not get anymore because I mean we do live in like some semblance of a democracy not a really good one but you can vote, is what I'm saying. Um, yeah.
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> but, <laughs> right. uh, and and what it's funny what what Jameson talks about. Uh, he talks about this idea of like the simulacra, the copy for which no original exists. Yeah. And and he links this concept to nostalgia, and he talks about it especially with film. Um, like he talks about it with things like uh, like Apocalypse Now, and uh, like those movies about the '50s that were made in the '90s uh right yeah. like happy days or whatever like all that shit um uh just like this kind of like perfect idealized vision of what the past is and this is something that he considers to be like inherently postmodernism. and mcmansions are kind of like that they're like the 80s person from 1980s like view of like maybe like the mansion from like the roaring 20s or like Versailles, like it's a copy of of a past that doesn't exist.
0: Well, and and another thing that he points out in the in his essay is that, um, you know, aesthetically, postmodern presents itself as a kind of populism. It's basically, um, you know, it's basically, you know, I guess in sort of demarcating postmodernism from modernism, he's basically saying like. You know, in postmodernism, like in in architecture, there's not there's not this idea of the master anymore. It's like everything is more populist and you kind of get this idea that you are living in a democratic society when that's not at all the case. And I I do wonder um, if the reason why that is, is because you had so many people entering the middle class in the 70s and 80s and they didn't want to like their tastes and they were nouveau riche. They didn't want to be insulted by the fact that they had no highbrow. Like taste or anything like that, it's kind of like a well a melding of high culture and mass culture.
2: It's interesting. Uh, Hal Foster in the book The Art Architecture Complex has something really interesting to say about the sort of populism uh, that was present at the time and what that sort of populism was, uh, and how it, it was sort. Of, he taught it uh, what he called it was double functioning about this populism was double functioning in that I, and I quote, uh, there's an allusion to architectural tradition for the initiated inclusion of commercial iconography for everyone else. And this served as a double coding of cultural cues that reaffirmed class lines, even as it seemed to cross them. Uh, and this is a kind of what he calls deceptive populism, which is one, a populism that is like on the sort of lower class side or like the non elite side is based on commercialism. What is good and what is popular is based on what people consume. And on the other side, it's based on sort of taking the semiotic signifiers of things like home with things like the Gable, et cetera. And uh, that can also sort of like trickle down to um, this. uh, You would take, these, these uh, architectural illusions, like for example, you would have like some ironic version of like, say the Parthenon, but it's like t- candy colored or something like that. <laughs> like people who went to college would be like, oh, that's so funny. He's like doing the Parthenon or something. Yeah. But someone who didn't go to college would be like, oh, it reminds me of like the bank. and But it's colorful and therefore friendly to me and therefore I will consume it. Uh, so you you, it's like kind of the best of both worlds, so to speak, in this weird sort of populism. Where it's a very like uh, cynical populism. Any, but so much of the populism of of postmodern architecture is based on consumption. That's why learning from Las. That's my qualm with learning from Las Vegas, which was centered around Las Vegas, which was centered around sort of like the iconography of advertising at the scale of the car. And there's like we need to design for this world, which is a very kind of like peering down your nose supercilious way of looking at designing for everyone uh very much what would come out of yale uh
0: yeah (laughs) it was written by this guy
1: robert venturi is that correct
2: and denise scott brown his partner yeah
0: and
1: and robert venturi is is my my daddy daddy, just um, for the record oh really tom's Um, a big robert
2: like i really like i there's so much to love in that book just as as a something that disrupted the architectural status quo in a way that was somewhat necessary frankly because you're talking about this the the early 70s which is a time when architecture was have, was going through this sort of split on the one hand you had the sort of last vestiges of modernism which were reinventing themselves in in different ways and the the sort of the predominant way it was reinventing itself was through high tech which is basically like a super distilled like structural expressionism so you had like the Santra pompadou which is a building that's basically its guts are on the outside and this including all the services and the circulation are all on the outside and the inside is just like a continuous volume which is like as high-tech as you can get it's like oh we just we're we're expressing on the exterior all of the functions of the building right from its plumbing to the escalators to what have you and then on the other hand you had this group of architects that were starting to sort of move past um move past modernism and trying to sort of incorporate things like like sort of theoretical concepts like uh especially from philosophy like semiotics deconstruction post structuralism, they're thinking how can we bring that to architecture and what happened was there's this 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 kind of a split the split between reinventing modernism and coming up with something else and learning from las vegas Mm -hmm. is really kind of a document that describes that split uh and declares one side of that split in a very manifesto-y way Uh, and so in, in some cases like this is why the 70s are my favorite time period architecturally speaking this is like the time period that my master's thesis covered um this is the time period where all my coffee table books deal with <laughs> uh it's just like the weirdest shit imaginable was going on in the 70s uh you had like half ha- half late modern half postmodern conglomerate buildings that made no sense like we're talking about just like a time of total experimentation and and uh moving past like what was considered sort of normalcy and I find that to be very exciting, and I don't think architecture has been as exciting since, not to be, like, a big, like, poo-poo, like, kind of a bitch, but <laughs> it, it's, like, after the 70s, like, everything got really fucking boring.
0: Yeah. I I, I like, um, I, was Guildhouse built in the 70s? When did Robert Venturi, when was that built?
2: Yeah, I think Guildhouse was, like, I want to say, like, seven, it was... Maybe the late '70s really... or early, maybe the late '60s, early '70s. Yeah. Because it's included in *Learning from Las Vegas*, which was written in 1972. Um, so I think it's yeah, late '60s. I want to say '68 is when it was built. Yeah. But...
0: I, I love wouldn't... I love that building, um, and I think it's funny that and, – and this is kind of like I guess what you're saying, like the sort of postmodern thing. is like they put a huge antenna on top, and it served no purpose. It, it was just them basically saying like the residents inside will be watching a lot of TV.
2: <laughs> the Guildhouse is – I love the early Venturi stuff so much just because it is so fanciful. It's like it's not cynical, which is what I like. I feel like once they got to the point where they were getting to like the additions on like to the, onto the art museum, once they started doing academic buildings, like it was over, like it started to get, it got, I think their stuff got more and more cynical, but in that sort of late sixties, early seventies period, it's so innocent. Like the house that Robert Venturi built for his mother is just like, okay, what if we took the broken pediment, which is a type of ornament that goes above a door or a window and we just made it like the roofline of the house. Right. In in ele- in elevation. And it's like okay, that's awesome. Like that's so funny. Like it's so charming. It's so iconic. I would get that tattoo. I mean <laughs> And then they, in the the house it's like, yeah, we watch TV and it's like, yeah, we're owning it like no architect really since has owned the fact that like most of what we do as americans is watch tv like there was a study done on like which rooms were used most in the house and it was like the kitchen and wherever the tv is are the two most used rooms in a house all the other ha- rooms in the house except for maybe the bedrooms are just like for show uh yeah and so you've written about that, that was real like i mean they i they weren't being like the least bit funny about it they were just like we're just designing for use <laughs> wink wink nudge nudge and it's like okay but it's funny like it's charming it's like fanciful and then it like but the thing about postmodernism is it started out so fun and like so silly and so unserious and then got progressively more serious more ironic more uh edgy right more it just like became something that was like it became first of all hegemonic stylistically i mean it dominated everything and it's dominates so many city skylines because at the time like you're this is a time of like great real estate investment on like a scale that is only rivaled by i think today as far as a uh, skyscraper building in major cities uh so it's like dominates this the city the skyline of like Philadelphia dominates New York dominates Cleveland dominates i mean it the postmodernism was intensely productive and it was almost entirely in the service of corporate wealth that's why i said it's quite sad that there are not very many postmodern residences and the ones that do exist are from architects the earl, early periods of an architect's career because once they got those sweet corporate gigs, like, they were not going to go back to doing houses. Right,
1: right. Well, I, I, was, I was curious, Kate, and that kind of makes sense that, uh, well, we were talking about Robert Venturi, and when I think about Robert Venturi, I think about Columbus, Indiana. And oh, yeah. In particular, you know, like— Fire Station Number Four, I think, is is my favorite Venturi that I think that I
2: love that building.
1: Yeah, I think it's fun.
2: The typography is so good. Just like the aesthetic is just so choice. Oh, totally. Those super graphics. That's what we need to bring back from the seventies. Really, is super graphics. Just like print big shit on walls. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: You know. Why are we not? Do, why do we paint our walls gray instead of having weird super graphics? Like, oh yeah. I want, like, a giant number four in my bedroom. Like, I don't know what the four means. It doesn't mean anything. Small. <laughs> yeah. Like, hell yeah. Like, give me, like, a giant, ta- like, painted target. Like, or something. Just anything. Just, like, give me, like, the word, like, high in giant letters. It doesn't even matter what it is. It can be totally asinine. All it matters is that it's huge and it's on the wall.
0: Totally. Totally. <laughs> well, so, you know. Uh, in the sort of vein of Venturi, like, uh, and, you know, and so like while we're talking about this sort of like grand historical scope, um, you know, you've written a lot about um, how well in your article for the nation about Philip Johnson, you, you had pointed out that architecture sort of used to be an upwardly mobile white collar profession. Whereas now it's like a deeply unequal and star-studded uh, spectacle. Is what you call it? Um, like, what what accounts for this? Like, what changed, I guess, in the last sort of fifty years that um, that caused that?
2: I mean, it's the same thing you're seeing other in other white collar fields. Like, you're talking about like the proletarianization of white collar work, uh, which happens, and it's going to start happening to tech workers if it's not happening already. Uh, it's it's happening to um, things like tech support, uh, which has mostly been exported to to uh, to um, poorer countries now. Yeah. Uh, and basically, people drive wages down <laughs> because it's cheaper for them to do that. And but architecture back in the day used to be a job that you could get if you were a man by the way let's be clear here. right men's work it was a job that you can get just like enge- it was like engineering it was a job <clears> you can get that was like you were doing creative like you were doing this sort of semi-creative but like productive work that you were making a building and it was a big serious deal and you uh, were draftsman and you had a draft by hand and it was this all this like kind of reverence and Uh, The reverence and the sort of not that sort of like power of the individual creator on his built environment—that bullshit has stayed around. But the architecture being a job that you can make like a decent living in has gotten worse and worse and worse. And part of it is uh, just a generally downwardly mobile trend of things like white collar work, and you can see it in, in in journalism and writing as well. We're used to like at my point in my life and in my career, if I was alive like I don't know thirty years ago, I would be working in a in an in a newsroom or in a in at a magazine with a unionized job with health insurance and a career that would be sort of upwardly mobile mm-hmm. and as we can see, we've just like decimated media. Staff jobs are almost impossible to come by and you get them by knowing somebody and, or you have a degree in journalism, which is, you know, you go a hundred grand into debt for a job that pays like 40 grand a year. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of the same thing with architecture. You Architectural education is extremely expensive. The undergrad is usually five years. Then not to mention a master's degree, not to mention you have to pay to take all of the exams to get accredited uh, to uh get licensed uh you it's it's a huge capital sink to become an architect to become a licensed architect to become uh a member of the aia all of these things you and you don't have a union and what's interesting about architecture offices is they're not just like cool suave ayn rand protagonists at uh, at their desks doing mighty cool creative work or whatever <laughs> there are a bunch of fucking unpaid interns at computers drawing screws in autocad right i mean talking about like the outsourcing of like like the guy at the top frank Gehry or like robert stern or any of these people like they just like draw some bullshit on a napkin and then it's up to everybody else firms of hundreds if not thousands of people to make it into a building and so we're not really seeing like architecture is just an industry like anything else and it produces a commodity like any other industry But what's different about architectural work is that it's imbued with like this bullshit of not only like the individual and his creator and like his contribution to the landscape of mankind or whatever, but also this idea that of like this workaholic workaholism that is that starts in undergrad. Where it's just like if you really want to be dedicated, you have to like do you have to work overtime, you have to take an unpaid internship, you have to it's all about self sacrifice for for the art of the building. And this is just a huge thing in architectural culture. It's a culture of overwork. It's now becoming a culture of under or unpaid work. Uh, and it's and when work becomes unpaid, then the only people who can afford to do it are people who already have money. And so you're starting to see the same sort of uh, income inequality and like advantages. Uh, That rich people have in our in architecture, which is about 20 years behind all of the other arts where it's been like this since like the 80s. It's like everything else after Reagan. It just turned to shit. It got neoliberal, so to speak. (laughs)
0: We've all been we've all been neoliberal, I guess. Um, Yeah. Does this basic, I mean, I don't know, does this account for things like the vessel? I mean, you recently wrote about the vessel for the baffler. There was a specific passage in there that I thought was interesting. You said that... uh, like and 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 if our audience doesn't know what the vessel is, maybe we can make that the episode art, but to me this is astounding. I live in a place obviously me and Tom live in a place where there's no development, there aren't new buildings built like if anything, buildings are being torn down or they just fall apart like there's no there's nothing like that and no development and so like I was reading a you know your article is the first time I'd read about the vessel in New York um. You know, you wrote that it it's a vessel for the depths of architectural cynicism, a form without ideology and without substance. Like, how can a building, uh, like, what do you, I guess, what do you mean when you say an architectural object doesn't have ideology, that it lacks ideology?
2: It, I think it lacks, uh, it's an interesting question because it lacks, it's completely cynical, essentially. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. It it, it It's... The the rhetoric of the vessel is like all buzzwords. I mean like innovation and views and all these other things. And the vessel is not even really a building. It's a, like a set of stairs that goes to the top of the set of stairs and you can like look out at things.
0: Yeah, you, you wrote that it almost it almost seems that like uh I think you wrote this that it almost kind of seems like it was designed specifically
2: it's like not shelter Yeah it's to
0: just... just to take selfies.
2: Just yeah, pretty much. It's like for selfies. <laughs> oh, uh, God. I frankly, like I'm not one of those people who's like perma mad at selfies because like, but if you're like, you're gonna hike your ass up the vessel, which they won't let you take the elevator, and you, unless you're like visibly disabled or a VIP. Like if you, if you're gonna haul your ass up the vessel, you might as well take a fucking selfie. It's 16 flights of stairs.
1: <laughs> Very true. Get your monies worth. Yeah, totally.
2: Exactly. It's like. Well, but the Vessel is just like the most hollow image-driven architecture. It's architecture in the service of capital that aims to sell an image. It aims to brand a space. The Vessel is a is a 3D brand. Uh, it's an object that can be Instagrammed over and over and over again. And is, in, is in, 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 through Instagram, it's re-commodified. You know, by ads, by uh, by algorithms, by all these other things, and and so it's like it's just an it's a building that is endlessly consumed and produces nothing. Right. Like it means nothing. It does nothing. It just sits there, and you walk up. It doesn't even protect you from the elements. It's just completely hollow. There's no. There is, no, I, there is no ideology, and if there is an ideology, it's unacknowledged. It's the, it's just the ideology of the status quo. It's right. Ideology of architecture at the service of the wealthiest and dumbest people imaginable. Uh, and that is an ideology, but it's really like it says nothing. It means nothing. Um, well. And, and, unless you're a Marxist like, and you're like me and you're like, this is what it means. Like if you're somebody else – you're just like it's the stair thing that we walk up and yeah you
0: different. just take it for granted um you're like,
2: yeah i want my selfie god damn it yeah right
0: <laughs> <laughs> well and, and so if you've got like commercial buildings that are basically only meant to be they just brand space essentially just for consumption and then you've got residential buildings that are basically just for consumption I mean, what like what do we need to do to start looking beyond this? I mean, like me and Tom were talking about this to like prepare for it, and like one of the questions that we had come up with is like, you know, what does architecture look in a socialist society? Like, you know, our only approximation is the Soviet Union, and and I think the first thing that comes to mind is brutalism, and Tom had pointed out like in the kitchen debates between Khrushchev and Nixon in the fifties, like. There, I mean, there's an amazing the, people should go read the whole thing because the whole thing is amazing. but Khrushchev has an amazing passage in there where he's like, you know we build things to last. like you know in you know in 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 America, you build things to last just a couple a couple of years. like in Russia, people will be living in those homes for forever. like and so it's just like like what is it like what would homes and architecture uh look like, I guess, in a more just um uh, society in a socialist society?
2: I think about this a lot, actually, being a socialist and all. Um, (laughs) And uh, I think that when we get to the root of it, the first thing that socialism should address is inequality. And that includes housing inequality. And so it means um, we have lots of people who need to be housed, and we have to build spaces to do it because when the landscape is dominated by basically single family homes owned by like bourgeois people, um, especially in cities, if you own like a house and you live in a city, like you're canceled. Sorry. That's a part <laughs> I think about that scene in Dr. Zhivago where Yuri Zhivago comes back from war and like the communists have like taken over like his, Parents' apartment, and I'm like, yeah, that's what we're gonna do. That's booked. <laughs> uh,
0: Hell yeah, I'll, I'll help you, you with know, that. I
2: think that, uh, for me, like in an ideal socialist society, which to me would be an eco socialist society, I think a lot about what work art, right? Like, if you want to look like from a sort of a concrete utopia stance, like what are people doing right now that is utopian? I think about things like the passive house movement and like carbon neutral building which not only is awesome because we're talking about like a zero waste carbon neutral building uh that is completely energy neutral which we have achieved by the way but we're also talking about a carbon neutral energy efficient building that is fucking good looking like all of the passive house apartment blocks are just like beautiful like they are like five stories made with like all this beautiful timber and this this low emissions glass i mean they are really good looking and That's the kind of thing that I think we would have in a socialist society, which I think would be denser than, uh, sort of like we would have to, if we're going to be an eco-socialist society, we have to get rid of the car and sprawl and all this other stuff. We have to rehabilitate sprawl. And there's a cool book about this called degrowth in the suburbs, um, which kind of talks about like, okay, what do we do to facilitate this transition? And some of the things that people have come up with are turning McMansions into senior housing. Um, and, turning uh sort of like like, turning them into multi-family residences uh one thing i think is interesting that i think points to the direction that this is going in is i don't know if you saw that article at bloomberg about the college kids who are living in empty mansions in vancouver
1: no i saw that yeah
2: they're like renting them for like a dollar a year and shit and it's just like yeah this is awesome the transition's already beginning because as more and more people don't want to buy these houses because they're fucking stupid like then the sort of what makes them so alluring, which is how much they're worth will eventually be kind of tanked. Uh So you're talking about something that is useless from a real estate speculation perspective, but useful from a use value perspective. Right. And that when it's kind of like, okay, we're talking about like use and exchange value. It's like the exchange value of the McMansion, like in Vancouver that like has gone to like $1. It becomes – basically when you eliminate the exchange value, it becomes something that's only use value. And so now college kids are living in them because they could use a house for $1 a month. Right, yeah. Uh, and so it's uh, it becomes sort one of those things like when you decommodify or rid uh, architecture of, of exchange value, cities that eliminate or decommodify housing – I think will be sort of like the future. Like housing is a human right, but that doesn't get to the fact of it that it is also a commodity. And it cannot be both a human right and a commodity at the same time. Right. Like this, this... it's one of those things. Like we in order for housing to actually be affordable and to be useful for most people, we have to decommodify it. Yeah. And so then you're talking into you're you're getting into things like rent control or um like like land trusts or any of these other ways to socialization any of these ways to sort of take housing out of the market like out of the market um and then also i think energy wise i think we're gonna have like lots of cool solar houses we're gonna have like cool solar punk universes where like we have like trees growing in our houses and stuff like that (laughs) that <laughs> yeah, would be like, I, That's the kind of like people are like, what kind, what's like your aesthetic of like a socialist future? And I'm like, dude, it's solar punk. It's got to be solar punk. <laughs> our houses from the 70s. Like, we're doing that. Like, we're going to build like solar paneled like backpacks and solar paneled like transportation and solar. And it's going to be so awesome looking. It's going to be so sick. Like, we're going to have <laughs> passive houses that look awesome. We're going to have like solar buildings. We're gonna have like zero waste, zero emission buildings. And the thing about like what's so funny about like and like people were always like environmentalism has to be austerity. Well, I went to Finland, which is like the closest thing we have to like social democracy. At least I spent a week in Finland last year and got to see a bunch of cool Finnish shit. Uh, everyone looks so young and happy there because they don't have to worry about you know like healthcare. Like if something happens to them, like they're just taken care of, so they can just like look tall and beautiful and blonde and shit all the time. Yeah. Uh, if I didn't have to worry about health insurance, I probably would not have wrinkles at twenty five. <laughs> just saying. Right. right. Uh, but I think so. In Finland, I went to this um, workshop on, uh, or like a like a discussion about uh, in, about planned economies. Uh, and this idea of like what they call a circular economy, which is kind of like the capitalist version of degrowth. Um, and the circular economy is basically like making goods resilient and usable so that they have like a really long lifespan. And when that lifespan sort of comes to a close, like it can be reused for something else. Like the, basically the goal is to not have to throw anything away uh-huh. or to, to waste as little as possible. You know, like the first parts of like reduce, reuse, recycle, it's like really emphasizing the – first two parts of that reduce and reuse. Um and at the same time, uh talking about sustainable materials, like they made this like imitation plywood out of of like plastic bottles and stuff like that. It looks awesome. It's like plywood, but it's blue and white and stuff. It's totally good looking. Like I was like, I'd have a countertop. They they found a way to make like stone like countertops out of plastic um, or out of like recycled materials and it looks just like stone but it's recycled materials like a hundred percent like low waste low and it's like we can have nice things that are ecologically sound this idea in american culture that like we all nice things have to be environmentally wasteful is fucking stupid and bourgeois like that nice things we can have nice things that are environmentally awesome and i know because i saw it in finland which (laughs) was not socialism but it's it's much better than what the fuck we're doing over here. Uh, well, and so
0: there is this like idea on the left recently. Um, I haven't really been keyed into these debates as much, but uh, but there has been this idea on the left that um, advocating for uh, degrowth, basically contra- a contraction of the global economy, for talking about um, reducing carbon emissions and making you know not you know completely destroying the the global ecosystem that that amounts to austerity um i don't know like it seems to me like a pretty big lack of imagination um but i don't know that's kind of what you're saying though am i correct like it it doesn't have to be austerity it doesn't have to like there's nothing in that that says inherently that that spells austerity for us i guess
2: to kind of give you an example of like degrowth like basically what we were producing in like the 2000 in like 2000 or 2000 i think there was a statistic that said if we kept producing at the rate that we were producing at 2000 like we wouldn't be like we would have like kind of staved off some of these like adverse climate effects so like just basically in the last like 20 years of neoliberalism like we've just been cranking out like carbon emissions like it's nobody's fucking business and if we had just stayed at like the level of like production 20 years ago which is by no means austerity frankly this is the year 2000 we're talking about um we could have like averted we it would have been it would be much easier for us to have avert to avert like climate catastrophe
1: wow like
2: i don't know if you guys know like i've noticed i mean i've noticed this especially with shoes of all things but i feel like back when i was younger you would buy something and it would last for fucking ever yeah and now like everything is just like as cheap as it's like the cheapest shit possible and it like you can get like three washes out of a shirt meanwhile i have clothes from like the 80s and they're doing just fine and it's like well the thing is is like we're just producing more and more and more shit. It's about it's about the amount of shit that you produce, not necessarily like the quality of those goods. And so like what the thing there was like an interesting passage in Andre Gore's where he talks about uh, this idea of like we basically created economies of waste. Like for example, we invented things like plastic cutlery and stuff like that. And yeah, we produced more things. And by producing more things, we increased the gross domestic product. We had growth. But w- the things that we produced were just things we were going to throw away. So by producing junk, we increased the growth. like econo- we, we grew economically. But at the same time, this was all sort of an economy of waste, of wastefulness. Like literally like stuff that you would use once and throw out. Right. Like a plastic yeah. fork. It's like we would just like kept inventing and producing this kind of crap when like, Back in the day, people would just, like, use, I don't know, a metal fork, like, a normal fork. And so it's, like, people are, like, degrowth is austerity. And I'm, like, do you think that using a towel, a hand towel instead of paper towels is austerity? Because, like, that is, like, the dumbest definition <laughs> of austerity I have ever heard.
1: Yeah.
2: Like, like, degrowth is, like, that there's only going to be, like, four types of Oreos instead of 12. Like, I mean, <laughs> like, it's, like, uh... And we have to – and it's got to be, like, an international movement. Like, like. It, we have to have sort of – things like a Green New Deal, like, you know, it's all nice and good, for example, that, like, we're going to build these solar technologies. But the some of the stuff that is used for that is, like, basically conflict minerals in the Congo and stuff like that. Yeah. And so we're scramping – we have to make sure that, like, what we're doing is, is, is sort of like a kind – it's a development – of technologies and and a sort of uh investment in technologies but we got to make sure like that this is an equal investment in that there is a sort of like decolonial aspect to it that it's like yeah we should not be exploiting children in the congo for rare earth minerals to make solar panels like we can do this a better way so it, it comes down to like throughout the supply and production chain like we will have to make things sort of like more ethical But I don't, and I, but I don't necessarily believe in like full luxury space communism either, because like, we are going to have to make like a little bit of sacrifices and those sacrifices do include things like not using paper towels or like plastic cutlery and instead using metal cutlery and, and cloth towels, uh, like no more plastic bags, bring a fucking tote bag. It's like, these are, these are just simple, like examples of actions that people can take right now. But like we're gonna have to find different ways to like I don't know heat and cool our houses that are more efficient until we can re we can decarbonize the building supply. Um, well, we're we're talking about things that are these structural changes that are necessary, but the transitional period might be a little bit uncomfortable. And these are just like basic sort of I'm taking the domestic sphere. Yeah, yeah. Well, kind of, uh, expanding around that because like on on a larger scale, like yeah we're going to cut fossil fuels. There's going to have to be like a significant transition away from the car, which is going to hurt people, I think, and become politically unpopular.
0: The car, Uh, the car will be difficult. Um, because, well, there, you know, the, the great, you brought up Andre Gores earlier, but he's got a great essay about cars. That
2: essay about the car is like, if I could get one essay tattooed on my body. (laughs)
0: It's (laughs) a hell of an essay. And like the best part about it is he's talking about like how, um, you know the irony about cars is like you now can sit in traffic just emitting all these emissions into the atmosphere and you can a bike or even a person walking can be going faster than you (laughs) like they don't even serve a purpose anymore really (laughs) like you just sit in them they burn gasoline Uh, anyways like but anyway yeah but the car thing it will be difficult but the whole notion about like people having to make a sacrifice and stuff is like a lot of us are already making sacrifices and to just kind of like bring it back to where we were talking about at the beginning, like most the carbon, like most of carbon emissions come from really, really wealthy people in McMansions and shit like that who are just like,
2: I read this article once that said that a first class ticket on an airplane, like has like a six times the carbon footprint of any other ticket. (laughs) (laughs) well and it makes sense because like
0: yeah yeah, like just luxury goods luxury items stuff like that like it just costs more in general like in terms of externalities but also yeah like you know you had this essay about betsy devos's house and like you've just got like it's a massive house and it's got rooms in it that like have 80 foot ceilings it's just like you know, and you can just imagine those houses just sit empty all fucking day with air conditioning on all goddamn day. Like, just nobody
1: there. Nobody fucking benefiting from any they it. Also, would, they would scare the hell out of me to be there alone in a house. Yeah,
2: yeah, a yeah, house that big. There's 11 dishwashers in that house. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. No, I think that, yeah, you put – I can't remember – uh, but you had it in your essay. It's, yeah, it's just like... It's like a massive house, but it's only got like four bedrooms. And the rest of it is like kitchens, bathrooms, living rooms. <laughs> like, just space that is not even fucking used.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, we- oftentimes I, f- I find the uh, the pool houses of these places are like... Oh, bigger than... Yeah. And much more tasteful. <laughs> <too>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, Terrence's landlord lives in this, like, huge... I don't know what you would even call it,
0: uh, Mike Mansion. No, it's a, no it, it's a Spanish villa. It's yeah. literally modeled. It's it's literally like architect. It's modeled after a Spanish villa. Yeah, but no,
1: he's got a pool. But house. But his pool house is like that. Is my dream house in this town? Is 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 your landlord's pool house?
2: <laughs> You're gonna become a pool boy.
1: Yeah, hey, that might yeah. be that might be my column. Yeah.
0: Well, so okay, before we wrap this conversation up. Let's dial back out to the big picture real quick. There is a very big architectural story this week, Um, perhaps one of the biggest of the last few years, and that is that uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral burned down. Now, this story in and of itself is interesting for all kinds of architectural reasons. However, the
1: ante was upped today. What happened today, Tom? There was a bunch of billionaires crowdfunded hundreds of millions of dollars to 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 redo this, but then Macron, I guess, is hate Macron. Yeah, <laughs> He's like, I want to have a came competition. up with the competition. Uh, les competition. Oh,
2: yeah, I saw that, and I was. Like, oh uh, no! This is possibly like the worst case scenario when like some when the president's like we're gonna have a comp- architecture competition. Historically, this has never really gone well. It's it's kind uh, of the most
1: neoliberal bullshit for, you can like, imagine.
2: The lifeblood of architecture, but also like extremely tiresome. Uh, I think it's so funny. It's like fucking.
0: It's like something you'd see out of a movie. It's like, all right, everybody. Yeah, you've got a We're going to have a competition. To <coughs> the who can build their, their <laughs> chapel
1: back to its <laughs>
0: original uh, glory. Regional, yeah,
1: glory, but
2: even better. <laughs> <laughs> like that's He's good at that. You know,
1: you nailed know, Macron.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we're gonna end up with like Thomas had the wreck of vessel fame doing like just a bunch of vessels, but it's like the new spire. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. you have to just, like stacking little vessels on top of each other. <laughs> Just... We're gonna get Santiago Tra- Calatrava like doing something that looks like a like a chicken bone wing, like a chicken wing bone. Yes, yeah. Oh, and then like, like rubber bands and shit.
1: That, that's what Jacob Becker like, said. He was like, uh, "We're gonna get Calatrava to put an upside down well skeleton that looks like it was made out of styrofoam <laughs> on top of the cathedral."
0: <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the worst architects, and I'm you know you gotta realize I'm a newbie at this is Zaha Hadid, in my opinion.
2: She's dead, thank God. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, like, some of her, the Haydar the Aliyev Center, I think it's in Azerbaijan, is one of the ugliest fucking buildings I've ever seen, but could you imagine if they redid the Notre Dame Cathedral with that kind of I They just stuff? put that on top. <laughs> <laughs> they about
2: that. I just... so like basically, Zaha Hadid died, like, a couple years ago, and she died suddenly. She's, like, only 54. Right. Uh, and she's like, she's like the peak, she's like peak, like, she's like the Hillary Clinton of architecture. Like, she's got, like, pantsuit power, but she's like a woke war criminal, essentially. Right. Because uh, she, like, basically, like, all of her buildings in the release were, like, built with, like, slave labor. Like, she works with, like, the bloodiest, like, most authoritarian government. So, yeah, and just shrugs is, like, it off. a bad egg. Yeah. But also, so she died. The guy in charge of her practice now is Patrick Schumacher, who is, like, an Ayn Rand acolyte. And, uh, like, basically, like, said that, like, advertisements are art and that uh, cities should be privatized and then they will be better.
0: Mm. Great. Well, so maybe... we're talking about,
2: like, the biggest bag in, like, architecture right. at this moment. Maybe he'll enter I, in
0: the competition.
2: I, I think he's blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's how you know you're Which doing it, fine. right? Um, well, okay, so... But,
2: like, if Saha Hadid, like, gets the commission for Notre Dame, I'm just, like, going to self-immolate in the Paris Square.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You'll you'll be missed. Yeah. Well, like, what, um... Okay, so, like, there's that aspect of it, like, the global arms race to see who gets to rebuild the thing. But, uh, what kind of loss was this building to the uh, architectural uh, legacy of mankind, humanity?
2: So, I think, like, as far as my understanding, only the spire got destroyed. And the spire was built in, like, the 19th century. Right. Okay. Uh, by so... this guy named Le Duc.
1: Le Duc. <laughs> Le and, uh, he Le Duc.
2: And he basically, he also put a statue of himself as, like, one of the saints on the spire.
0: Wow.
2: <laughs> so, we're talking about, like, big egos he here. But this wasn't an original part of the church. So the spire and like the roof are done. Mm-hmm. But everything else kind of remained intact. So like the sweet shit that's like from the medieval era is mostly safe. That shit would have been really sad if it and like all the art is safe. Uh the cross and all the other stuff is safe. So most of the stuff that is like really, really, really odd. Not that like Le, the the Leduc Le stuff is 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 like it's sad that it's been demolished. It's sad that it burns. Like it's definitely sad. Like I definitely cried a little bit when i saw that happening cuz the time we didn't know exactly how much was going to be lost but it seems like think the things that were the most most priceless seem to have survived um but i think that uh so i think it's it's not a good situation in that it's like fucking sad to see like something so locked into the imaginations of so many people burn I mean, I don't think it means anything but, like, the death of Western civilization or some bullshit. It's literally just, like, (laughs) an accident. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Accidents happen with buildings. Accidents happen, but when they happen with buildings, it's never good.
1: I I have a conspiracy theory. Tom has a conspiracy theory. theory. Someone
2: burned it down to... Okay, what's your conspiracy theory?
1: Do we know where Emmanuel Macron himself was when all this was going down? You know he's taking some heat from the Gilles Jean. Maybe this was like his, like we're all Frenchmen. Yeah, yeah no. like the Reichstag fire. Right. I, yeah. I, I
2: sus- I'm subscribing to this conspiracy theory. It was an inside job to blame the yellow vest. Yeah, it was
1: Macron's 9/11. <laughs> no,
2: speaking of 9/11, dude, Blair came and he was the architecture critic of the Chicago Tribune wrote his column about this and Blair came in as my least favorite person on probably living on this earth Uh, like I hate him so much he's like he's like peak boomer essentially Yeah. like I need they should give me his job and fire him Uh, I will go on the record to say that but like he wrote he wrote uh, when it was happening that like that it was that like Notre Dame's fire burning down was worse than (laughs) 9-11 because Notre Dame was good architecture and the World Trade Centers was not good architecture (laughs) Fortunately, the editors at the Chicago Tribune managed to like nerf that part of the essay before too many people saw of course I have I have screenshots <laughs>
1: uh, receipts
2: <laughs> because uh, fuck Blair uh, he's a huge misogynist he's never said anything good about a female architect he like refuses to even like acknowledge the existence of any other women who write about architecture not only myself but like everybody else that I know uh so he sucks. He's a piece of shit, and I hate him. And he never has anything interesting to say, which is the worst crime one can commit when they are a serial, a serial, co- a serialized critic.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Imagine like, being
2: a critic with like nothing fucking to say.
0: <laughs> well, like, it's, it's a, he had something to say here, but uh, people didn't yeah, like it too really
2: much. It was worse than 9/11. <laughs> and I was like, "Someone tell Blair that people died on nine 11 Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's so insane. But, like, What's his reasoning? Like, uh, because. it's of- Mean to the World Trade Center's, which was not a bad building. It was like not the greatest building, but it wasn't a bad building. But also, like, thousands of people died in 9 11. Like, not to be like sanctimonious, not to be the other kind of boomer, which is like 9 11 sanctimonious. Yeah. But,
0: uh, well, yeah. But, like, the, the... I mean, but
2: it's just like a fact that like 9 11 was worse than the spire of Notre Dame burning down. Yeah, like, zero that people
0: just, died. Because
2: people died. Yeah. And we <laughs> now have like a police state. We have like a bigger police state because of 9-11 I, they like I... gave us all brain poisoning we really want to get to the bottom of the problem it's that, that the upkeep of our cultural heritage is basically sold to the lowest bidder and uh we essentially like because so many of uh like the maintenance no one wants to do maintenance on anything like what's so sad about notre dame is that this fire happened because they were doing maintenance. Like because they were making repairs. Right. Granted, those repairs were outsourced to the lowest bidder, but they were making repairs nonetheless. Right. And but the other the other aside from like Syria, which is like you know war crimes, uh, like the other fires, like the National Museum in Brazil and uh, the Glasgow School of Art are, are just negligence, and that is is and that negligence is some is somehow like that is really profoundly sad. Um, that negligence cost so many things to be destroyed yeah uh and i think that for me like this is all sort of part of the same problem which is like first of all like we don't really fucking value in our neoliberal society arts and culture everyone just tells you why don't you get a job that pays uh it's like the people who like would restore like notre dame or like take care of the museum and stuff like that are guess what fucking humanities majors right (laughs) like a straw man <laughs> or anything like that but like we don't give people like the jobs that are meaningful people don't take those jobs because they don't pay anything right the upkeep of our cultural institutions don't it doesn't pay like we've just let everything atrophy in a way that is like really really upsetting i think and being, whenever we're confronted with this we just kind of like move on after a week it's yeah. like oh this is so sad but like when you're when you're, you know, attached to architecture, like people who are into architecture like like dipshits like me are. <laughs> it's like, this is fucking upsetting and it's just gonna keep happening. Like how can we stop this from happening? Right. Like we should not be having all these massive fires in the year of our Lord twenty nineteen.
0: I'm I'm trying to remember I think you had written an article I'd read it a while back about um sort of about this. Um but it was also about the people who um like document meticulously the changes in kmarts across
2: oh yeah that's just my greatest article and my greatest contribution to uh that was nuts historic preservation
0: i didn't yeah i I didn't know anything about that but basically yeah you're basically saying what you're saying just now it's just like you know we you know in this sort of world where we just sort of turn all over our cultural preservation and historical preservation to like the lowest bidder like you've got these people out there who are basically you know sort of doing the the work um you know like i think it's really really cool it's like people are just like documenting this sort of cultural phenomenon um and they're doing it all in their own no time gonna do, it. do what
2: Cause it's because no one else is really gonna do it no, like, exactly
0: right yeah
2: it becomes like it's one of those things like there is a division and, and this is sort of the point of that article is like, there is a division between what like institutions find to be historically valuable. For example, like Notre Dame versus like the places in everyday life that everyday people find to be like memorable and important, like the Ramada Inn that they got married at. Yeah. Um, it's like, and that divide comes through in like internet labor essentially where you have all these people documenting all of these places on Facebook and Flickr groups and stuff like that. And because they're they're doing the work of preservation on their own because institutions have failed most of architecture, um, the vast majority of architecture is failed by architectural institutions. Like the buildings that we all live in every day, house, like our houses, our apartments, every, it's like, those are not important to architecture. They're important to us, like deeply, existentially important to us, but they're not important to the field of architecture as a whole. Architecture doesn't give a shit about them because they don't have an author. Right. They aren't about being something. They're about serving a purpose, which is providing shelter, and also a secondary purpose, which is as a commodity.
0: And, you know, just to sort of put a bow on it, um, I guess in a socialist world, you know, in a more just eco-socialist world, Architecture would uh, do what? What purpose would it serve?
2: Well, first of all, we'd beat the ego out of architecture. I know that sounds like extremely like totalitarian, but like architecture would be a good place to work, as well as beneficial to workers. And being beneficial to workers meaning the architectural workers, like architects, draftspeople, construction workers, etc. But also Housing the working class and be having buildings for the working class. I think a lot about um, uh, concert halls because that's what my that is what my master thesis was about. And I think a lot about the Berlin philharmonie which is a concert hall, which is by this architect, Hans Cherune, who's a little kooky, but let it slide. <laughs> uh, and the Berlin Philharmony, the the concept was that the orchestra would be in the middle and the audience would be seated seating, sit, seated around the orchestra this would in effect eliminate the embedded social hierarchical social hierarchies of concert hall seating that had been kind of like an ascribed function of concert hall seating and concert hall attendance since jesus christ like since concert halls <laughs> were
0: embedded. right right uh,
2: and so by eliminating sort of like the hierarchy of seating uh, and you 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 weren't able to give everybody like this kind of like equivalent experience that uh, Han Sharun called it like being an individual in a democracy. And I think that that concept of being the individual in the democracy is something that I think It's important for the architectural experience. Like we would like to have like architecture, especially cultural architecture should provide us with some sort of like solipsistic moment of like, you know, refuge. Like the art museum should be a place where we can be by ourselves and sort of like thinking about things or the concert hall should be a place where we have an individual unique experience that is a social experience as well. This balancing of the individual and the social, I think is deeply important to architecture uh, especially to housing. And I think that this is sort of like why Stalinism was so stupid, uh, like Stalinist architecture, because it was like, okay, we're going to ascribe like this idea of what good architecture is onto everybody. And that it's all, but it's all going to be like the same. And it's all going to be like top down, very sort of dogmatic architecture. Uh, and in reality, I think that there's this concept by Henri Lefebvre who he was the guy who coined the term the right to the city which is abused by liberal nonprofits everywhere um <laughs> but this idea that of appropriation which is to take the spaces that we are given and ascribe our personal meanings onto them like it's how we sort of make our own space in in space if that makes sense yeah like it, it's things like i always think of appropriation when i look at a, at a uh an apartment building and see all the different types of curtains that everyone has in an apartment building, and yeah. like, like their own sort of like or like every how every window is kind of different because everyone has different stuff. Yeah, I really I think about that like appropriation when I look at that because it's like here's this thing that we've been given and this is how we make meaning of it. Like this is how we ascribe our everyday experience on our own built environment, and that's going to happen no matter what. And, we don't like t- when we talk about like socialist architecture, especially historically. We don't talk about that kind of appropriation that happened. We don't show pictures of like actual people living in Soviet housing and stuff like that, and how they decorated and the kind of like kitschy shit they had laying around. It's all about like demonizing the imposing exterior and whatnot. But I think that like to me, like an arch architecture is like a vessel not to use like the fucking word vessel after the vessel but (laughs) uh it's kind of a vessel for our lives as people uh and we should be able to do with it what we will uh and that means like when we have like our beautiful eco-socialist solar punk architect designed housing for everybody uh decommodified housing what have you like we should be able to put whatever fucking pots we want on our balcony we should be able to have like the ugliest curtains in our windows like yeah we should not like i think the goal is to kind of like liberate aesthetics and personal choice from like sort of bourgeois propriety yeah like if yeah. like like if we live in a mo- modernist house no we don't all have to have modernist furniture like we can have lazy boy sofas in our modernist house it's fine like there are no rules to follow uh there's no right or wrong way to do architecture besides like mcmansions but (laughs) uh, mcmansions are obsidious because of what they mean today if they were reappropriated to means to be something else and to mean something else then i think that would eliminate most of the things that are bad for them like who can poo-poo a mcmansion when it becomes like low-income housing for seniors yeah like Like, what is so insidious about them is that they're, like, single-family houses for the richest and dumbest people imaginable. When they stop being that, when they stop using those signifiers and using that program, then I think that, like, we'll kind of, like, take the vinegar out of it, so to speak. Um, And so I think that, like, there's two kinds of architecture, of like, what it is and what it does for us. And we should always sort of be thinking of both.
1: Well, um, I think that's well said. One, one one last thing, Kate, before we cut you loose. What would you say are the two or three must read texts uh for the leftists in architecture?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Uh I think uh by like specifically like by Marxists, I think uh Architecture and Utopia by Manfredo Tafuri. he was an Italian architecture critic and architecture theorist uh toward an architecture of enjoyment by Henri Lefebvre uh which is uh I don't know why someone from Princeton University is calling me and I think it's the student loan people. Uh,
0: <laughs> They're calling you on what? Skype? Wow.
2: Dude, so canceled. Anyways, uh
0: Sorry, anyways.
2: And then I think um
0: Wait, I don't think you, – you got cut off when you were talking about, I think, Lefebvre.
2: Yeah, Toward an Architecture of Enjoyment is, like, a short bit about, like, what architecture would look like. If it was, like, built for joy and shit. Okay. Um, like, kind of divorcing architecture from urban theory for a second. Urbanism to, like, just talk about architecture itself, which I think is useful because urbanism kind of poisons the well of all discussions of architecture in one way or another. Um, And then I think, honestly, like, it's really always worth reading – the chapter on architecture from postmodernism or the cultural logic of late capitalism because really describes a lot of sort of the background of what's been happening in architecture in the last 40 years yeah and a lot of the stuff that is written in that book is is still relevant uh, especially like the sort of underlying structural critiques yeah
0: and you know i i suggest reading anything by frederick jameson i think he's always fun to read um
2: He's one of the few theorists that is like, you can just read him and you don't have to get a dictionary out.
0: <sighs> exactly. Yeah, he's very plain spoken, and um, and I, you know, I think it's, it's always fun to sort of like, you know, it, it's kind of like smoking weed, man, and like thinking about society.
2: <laughs> dude, yeah, that's totally true, though, because like, sometimes I'll, I'll read like Jameson and be like, dude, this is just like. Just is like punching me in the face with how good it is, like,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Just like, goddamn, like he's so good. Yeah, uh, I just like kind of want to be him at some point in my life. Yeah, uh, like it would be cool. Though I don't care enough about film. No offense to film. Oh, yeah, uh, he
0: does love uh, film.
2: Well, I just, like, don't know that much about film. Like, my partner, like, he's the one who knows about film. And so he'll be like, have you seen this Fellini movie? And I'm like, is that a type of noodle? Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yes, <laughs> like, actually. <laughs>
2: and, like, and sophisticated as I can be on, like, literature and art and architecture, when it comes to movies, like, I don't know jack shit.
0: <laughs> you, you only have so much brain space, you know? So I know.
2: It's like someone else can care about movies. That's why, that's why I think Jameson is a genius because he can just talk about everything. Yeah. And he, like, knows it all. Yeah. And you're just like. Damn, I wish I didn't fill my fucking brain up with, like, the dumbest tweets by the dumbest people. Yep. (laughs)
0: It's
2: like I know, like, about, like, Neera Tandon's mom now, but, like, I had to, like, delete a memory of something that was useful to me in order to, like, put that in my my brain.
0: Yeah. We all, honestly, you know, the fact that we have Neera Tandon like, that should be enough, like, mandate to break out the guillotines and everything. Like, that's... The fact that we're subjected to this what, person.
2: Like, the epitome of like someone I don't like. Like if someone just like drummed up like someone I don't like, it would just be near a tandem. Like John yeah. was like, let's create the perfect antithesis to Kate Wagner. Near a tandem.
0: Um well Kate, okay, we'll let you go. Um... Thank you. This has been a really fun. Yeah, this is really fun. Kate. Great conversation. Um,
2: yeah, it's a great conversation. Thank you guys. Yeah. Good questions. Yep. Good. Good. Get to do some dunks.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <Your> <laughs> That's always the quintessential podcasting experience.
2: Of sure. course.
0: Um, well, you guys you, cut out. We, you're, We cut out. Can you still hear us?
2: No, 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 you didn't cut out. Oh, we didn't cut out. You're right.
1: You're right. That's that's amazing. An it hour is. and a half is a new record, new personal best it for is. us. So.
0: Um, and
1: before we go, do you have anything
2: you want to plug? Um, visit my website at McMansionHell.com. And my at on Twitter is McMansionHell if you want to view my garbage tweets. Mm. um. I, uh, yeah. Okay. My website, my personal website is katewagner.org, where you can read all of my stories that I've written. I and like your also, personal website. Weird shit I put on my website just, just for funsies. Yeah. Uh, so if you like weird stuff, you can check it out. Uh, I guess that's it.
0: Yeah, I like the old, um, the old sort of 90s block. You know, your, your website is a nice little throwback to...
2: Thank you, because that's about the level I can code at.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: it's literally like a website from 1999. But I just like i am leaning into it because I think that that's when the web was good, actually, and everything since then, yeah, has been like downhill. I agree. Except, yeah. I mentioned hell. Like, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, thank you again, Kate, and uh, we'll see you on the internet. Where that that sucks.
2: Sure. Thanks, guys.
0: <laughs> see, you, Kate. We'll thanks. see you later, Kate.
2: Bye bye I
1: you